Mark. Hello, Smoking Joe. How are you? Same why. <laughs> Same why. I don't know why I'm going into French here. It's, uh, <laughs> we should do a bilingual version of this podcast. Oh, God, that'll be really embarrassing for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. That's weird. I will try to phrase it in the French. No, I will not. <laughs> I can get one word. West. How far west have you ever gone? How far west have I ever gone? Well, I've been to Vancouver. Well, that's pretty far west. Yeah, that's probably the farthest west that I've been, I think. Yeah. So, and I guess if I were to go any further west. If you could go further west, where would you go? Well, I, I would actually like to go south of that western point because, you know, I've never been to San Francisco or California or Los Angeles or any of those cool places. So I'd love to check out those places. Yeah, so many other places in the world I would like to to visit. What about you? There are a lot of places. Uh, oh, I've been all the way west. What is all the way west? Well, that means I've circumnavigated the world. I've oh. I've gone west and come back to where I started from. But have you ever been to Prague? <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> that was, yeah. I didn't go west to get to Prague, though. I went east. I took the short route. <laughs> uh, cheater. Yeah. So how about our guest, Mark? Mark Carney. Yes. How far west have you been? Well, I'm like you. I've gone as I've gone so far west it becomes east. Um, yeah, good. You know, I initially I went as far west as Australia, which has already crossed the international day line, and then I've also circumnavigated the globe the other going east to west. So I've gone as far east as I can go, and I've gone as far west as I can go. Yeah, that's a couple fair. of well-traveled gentlemen. There you go. But have you ever yeah. been to you? <laughs> Sorry, the question we ask ourselves all the time <laughs> but I, I guess the reason i asked that question is because the artist you want to talk about today is obviously went west at a certain point but before we get there we should probably ask you to you know describe who you are to our audience because i don't we because we don't do that we're too lazy <laughs> i'm mark carney and i have a new book out which we will be talking about my whole career has basically been writing and teaching, and I teach at Western University, along with the other Mark, in uh, the Faculty of Information and Media Studies, and also in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities, where I teach some writing courses. You have written several other books as well as the one that has just come out, right? Correct. This is my first uh, solo effort. I've co-written 10 books with a colleague of mine, a fellow writer by the name of Randy Ray, on Canadiana, I guess is the best way to do it. The Great Canadian Trivia Book is one of them. Or I Know That Name, which is about Canadian brand names and who they were named for and who were those people anyway. So who was Walter Zeller and who was Timothy Eaton, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Those are people who remember those stores. <laughs> so a lot of Canadiana things that we did over the years. So your last book is about Al Christie, and you're going to tell us all about Al Christie. Right. And his films, of which uh, Mark and I have seen at least one. Yeah. And uh, although they date uh, way back, why don't you launch into this? And Okay, so the, the book's called Al Christie, Hollywood's Forgotten Film Pioneer. And it's called that because he's been a mostly forgotten silent film director from more than 100 years ago. And I guess the main point of the book, from my standpoint, was that he has been overlooked for many years. He shows up in the occasional history of Hollywood, but usually as a, a footnote or a few sentences uh, that say, oh yes, he was here, blah, blah, blah. But that's about it. And so this is, I'm told, is the first full biography of him. He was born and raised here in London, Ontario, where I live. Um, he left here when he was in his 20s to basically seek fame and fortune. He went to New York City first. Uh, he was he had a stage background, so he went and worked there, sort of behind the scenes for stage companies. And he kind of stumbled onto this would be in around 1909, 1910. And he um, he stumbled onto a film set one day and was watching them make a movie. And the story goes that the the director of the movie got sick or got injured or something, and he stepped in and took over and finished the movie and said, ooh, here's something that I can do. 
Huh. And the rest, as they say, is history. He went to Hollywood in 1911, and Hollywood was a little town of fruit trees and farms. No one had been making movies in Hollywood. Nobody even knew what Hollywood was, really, except the people there. And uh, that's where he set up the studio and began shooting shooting movies in October of 1911. Yeah, I've got a question already. So is that before, like, Samuel Golden and uh, Louis B. Mayer and so on were there? Like he probably he just earlier? a little before them. Okay. Wow, that's wild. so. There were some directors who were shooting in and around Los Angeles, probably about a year before that, but right. nobody in Hollywood. But you said he stepped into a a film production that was already happening. Who were they? That was the Nestor Film Company. They were based in New York, and that's who he worked for. I'll try to keep this brief, but what happened is there's two things that are going on at that time in the movie business. One is they're making movies. It's ba- the, the industry is basically um, centered on the East Coast of the U.S., sort of New Jersey, yeah. New York. New Jersey, New York, yeah. And you can't film very easily in the wintertime because yeah. it's cold and snowy and nobody likes to be outside. And the light. <laughs> and the light right. you've got to have light the light would be terrible right remember those are very old cameras they're dealing with then right and so they would have good light in the winter for you know five hours or whatever so the thinking was we need to go somewhere warm and the thought was either go to florida or to california and the other reason they wanted to leave was that um thomas edison owned the patents to all the cameras and if anybody tried to shoot a movie with a camera that he supposedly owned the copyright, I suppose, to, he would sue them and he would put them out of business. And so people snuck around uh, New York and New Jersey shooting films and covering their cameras because there were apparently spies from Edison who would go and see what equipment they were using. Huh. So we got to get out of here was basically the thinking. And so the Nestor Company sent Christie and a bunch of people. Apparently they flipped a coin. Should we go to Florida or should we go to California? And it came up, California. So they went out there on the train, Christie and some actors and some technical people, and they set up their studio in Hollywood. Wow. Is it safe then to infer that they were really the beginning of all that in, in, in Hollywood? Yes. I, I like to say that all of Hollywood's film history starts with Al Christie. That is so wild. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back because I'm a, I, obviously I'm a London, Ontario boy too. So I'm interested in like, where did he grow up in London, okay. Ontario? I mean, so when he was born, he was born in 1881. His father was a police constable who died of not even a year later. His mother was widowed and she had a son and another, they had a half sister from father's previous marriage. They ended up living on Richmond Street, which for those who don't know, is sort of the main north-south street of London. They lived on Ann Street for a while, which is, again, sort of in the downtown. Uh, then they went back to Richmond Street. Al would have spent much of his youth there. So they moved a few times, but always sort of downtown, uh, what was downtown London. She, there's stories that say she took in borders as a way of raise, getting money, but I don't think they would have been living in a place that would have had much room for people. She did get a, some kind of widow's pension, I guess, because he was a police officer, her husband. So, And then the boys, Charles, who's uh, the older brother of Al, and Al would have probably started working odd jobs when they were teenagers. Wow. And he, Al did a number of different jobs as a, as a young man, but he worked part-time, as best I can figure out, at the Grand Theatre, which is the main theatre in London, Ontario. And was then in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Vaudeville people would come through London on the circuit. And he liked, he would watch those shows. He was a stagehand, I think, basically. And uh, he would watch these shows and he, he thought that he could make them funnier. He would watch their shows and he would write down notes and he would go and see them. And he would say, here, I've got this, you know, thing, skit you can do or whatever. And word got around that this guy sort of knew what he was doing. And so people would try out his stuff and they got laughs and word got around. So he got the showbiz bug and um, that's why he headed to New York. Hmm. Wow. Is now, it I know this is he, a... would, he would have known. Sorry, Joe. I, I have one more yeah, London question. 
because I'm <laughs> always fascinated by Ambrose Small, right? So he would have known him then. Well, Ambrose Small disappeared in 1919, I think. Yeah. And he owned the Grand for a while. Al Christie would have left. After he left then. Probably around 1909. So I don't know if Ambrose Small, probably Ambrose Small was around then. Right. Okay, who the heck is Ambrose Small? Ambrose Small is, so if you've heard, uh, Michael Andaji has a great novel called In the Skin of a Lion, which is about the disappearance of Ambrose Small, amongst other things, and the building of the Danforth overpass. Is that how you describe that? Yeah, the Danforth uh, overpass. Yeah, so the building of that, and then this uh, character from the early part of the century who owned the Grand Theater in London, Ontario. And he hmm. disappeared okay. very mysteriously. Everyone assumes he was murdered. Right. right. And apparently he, he haunts the Grand Theater. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we'll, have to do a, we'll do another podcast about him. <laughs> yeah. 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 So this is getting really deep into London, Ontario mythology <laughs> now. But sorry, I just I had to ask because it's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> well, I want to ask a related as we get further and further off track. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this podcast is, though. It's just like a series yeah. of, of uh, rabbit holes, basically. Rabbit holes, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The, OK, so my little rabbit hole is uh, his father died when he was like young did he die in the line of duty do you know no he died of um i want to say consumption or something he just had an illness and died i think fairly suddenly had been originally from scotland and had moved here and uh, became a police constable okay so back to al chris are you done with london marker <laughs> i'm done yeah i've got no other questions i just i'm sorry i just i want no, no, i will no. read the book obviously mark but <laughs> absolutely okay so he's in california it's like 1911 or something. Yeah. They've only basically just invented film like shortly before. And yeah, uh, movies so are I, just starting, right? Like this yeah. is maybe very 10 years around. Days. 10 yeah. years. Well, more than 10 years, but as a commercial thing, probably yeah. no more than 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And how are they being shown and distributed at that time? Well, at that time, first of all, Hollywood, when he got there, did not, I don't even think there was a movie, th movie theater there. There was one in Los Angeles. They made three films a week. When they got there, they made a comedy, a Western, and then a drama. And these would be short films of about 10 to 12 minutes long, which is what most people were watching then. Mm -hmm. They would, and Al Christie was the comedy guy. He oversaw the whole company, but he personally directed the comedies. They would shoot a comedy like probably in a day or so. They could not look at the film because there were no facilities there. They would shoot the film. They would ship it east, back east, where it was developed and I guess maybe even edited. And then a month or two later, it would show up back in Los Angeles and they would go and see it <laughs> to see what it looked like. And then the company, there was distribution throughout the U.S., but it wasn't uh, as certainly as complex as it got um, in the years that followed. But... Obviously, to the point where those films could be shown, were certainly shown in New York and across North, probably North America, probably in Europe as well. In the first year or so, for sure, Al Christie was making movies and not seeing the finished product until they came back and he got to see them in the theater. Wow. But, they, but the films were getting some exposure. So probably people like Buster Keaton and whatnot are out there seeing this product yeah. and saying to themselves, I could do that. Yeah. Probably that's quite possible, right? I could do better. One of the things that Christie, I got access to a lot of his notes and documents and things, which are housed at the University of Wyoming. And he, he um, talks about in those early days how there weren't really movie actors. There was there were actors, but they had been mostly stage people. Right. They didn't really think movie acting was you know they, that was kind of beneath them, but they needed the money. Anybody who was there, if they needed a, somebody to play a role, you know, if it was like a technician or a carpenter or whatever, they'd put them on the screen and, you know, do this. So it was kind of a haphazard sort of business at that point. But they did have, I mean, they had stories. I mean, they didn't just shoot and make it up as they went along, although there's some of that. And so they would crank out, literally crank out these, mil these movies every week. And um, shortly thereafter in, in sort of, 1912, the Nestor company sort of got bought out or joined forces with Universal Films. 
which had just been around for a while. And if you go to movies now and you see Universal Studio, whatever, with the globe that goes around, that's the company. They've been around that long. So Christie went and worked for them as their head of their comedy for about another three years. Um, Again, churning out all these comedies. And again, with Universal, obviously they had a little more money to play with. But still, he was still making probably a film, at least a film a week. Now, did it ever improve that they didn't have to do their production, like the sending the film out, out east? Yeah. And yeah, eventually, go, yeah, they got the so facility. Did he ever actually get a chance to start to edit his own material, or was that always done by somebody else? Um, that's a very good question. I, I do know that he made some reference to it later on in the, in the 20s, I think, when he was making films, that, you know, it's better not to be the editor. I would guess in those early days, he was, well, I know he was writing some of the films. He was producing them. He was directing them. He probably was cutting them as well, right. uh, editing them in some way, because, you know, that's just the way the business was. So did he have like a chance to do theater work, like, like as a director before he did this, or did he just watch it done and then he brought it to film? It's My sense is that when he was in New York uh, doing the theater stuff, I don't know that he was directing. I, I think he was managing. Right. You know, he would go on tours with the company, and I think he was the guy or, sort of overseeing it all. But nothing that I remember seeing uh, in the research that he was actually a director of plays. I don't think so. So it's interesting that he didn't do that. He just became a director of movies instead. Because it, it seems to me from the, the Know Thy Wife piece that, that I watched, there was a director at work there really clearly. Like it's the way that the facial expressions of the actors come. It's like, oh, okay. So I have sort of imagined him sitting there with like a megaphone saying, okay, now you're surprised by that. And <laughs> yeah. Yes. I actually have a picture in the book. Of, it's a picture of him around that time. It's shown from the back, but he has this big, you know, megaphone and he's got his arm up and there's, you can see actors that are in front of him on a stage, a set doing something. So that's exactly what he would have been doing. He would have been coaching them. They would, even though it was silent movies, they would say some lines just to, again, as part of the process yeah. to get the story across. And so, yeah, he would have absolutely been in charge. He, you know, I think he, he knew what he wanted and the actors would listen to him because he seemed to have, even by then, he had kind of a track record. He, this is a guy who knows what he's doing. And and how old was he at this time in 1911? <sighs> would have been about uh, 30 at that point. Okay. And so Mark mentioned Know Thy Wife, which is the uh, the link that you sent us uh, initially. Why, why draw our attention to that film in particular? Right. So Know Thy Wife was from, uh, I think, 1918. It starred... Dorothy DeVore, a name that silent film buffs would know, but the average person would not know. She was a big star in her day. And the film is a, uh, the reason I asked you to watch it, because it, it's very typical of an Al Christie film from that time, even from an, you know, the Al Christie of the 1920s as well. He, uh, I think when people think of silent films, they often think about car chases, pies in the face, Keystone Cops. So Max Sennett is the director of that kind of style. So that's yeah. and Max Sennett's a yeah. Canadian as well. So that's the style of film that probably was most popular then and probably most universal because everybody can laugh at a you know physical comedy or a sight gag or whatever. Christie's films have some of that for sure, but he's much more about situational comedies. Mm-hmm. And he's all about the plot and a lot of his films are about a couple. They might be married, they might not be married, but it's a, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a, or a husband and wife. And there's usually some kind of mistaken identity. And there's something that goes a little wrong and they have to figure it out and, and things happen. And so Know Thy Wife is a really good example because the plot of it is that this young college guy and this young college girl are secretly married and the guy's parents back home don't know that he's married and they want him to marry the girl next door who he's sort of left behind. So he thinks I, you know, I can't tell them they'll be so ashamed, whatever, whatever. So they concoct this plot, so to speak 
where Dorothy DeVore, his, his wife, will dress up as a man and pretend to be his roommate from college. And they will go home and, I guess, sort this out in some way. But we can't shock them by coming home as a married couple. So they go home. He introduces this friend um, <laughs> who's, who's dressed as a man. And the, the mother's all excited. Oh, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I'll leave you two boys alone in the room, the bedroom. And, of course, when she steps out, you know, they start kissing. And the mother comes back in because she's forgotten something. And she sees this and seems to be fairly unfazed by it. <laughs> There's a great line. She says, you know, you boys certainly get along well or something like that. <laughs> um, so they keep up the pretense. And the boy's father is kind of interested in her. And they go out for an evening and meanwhile the girlfriend shows up and how what are we going to do and he does you know etc etc yeah so all of these things go on um to complicate the plot and it's very much i think the kind of things that you would see in comedy theater in those days gilbert and sullivan or mistaken identities it's it's classic shakespearean comedy exactly yes it's not gender bending and yeah exactly yeah yeah But for film audiences, this probably would have been something unusual. If they were, if the film audiences were not going to see Shakespeare or Gilbert and Sullivan, which probably many of them were not, they would go to the movies because movies were cheap. This would have been probably a pretty wild movie yeah. for them. Look, look, this this woman's dressed up as a man. Blah blah blah. And then, of course, it it gets solved at the end. And so, and that's all in like twelve minutes. So he yeah, crams a, a very short movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I've shown it now a couple of times to people. Uh, I did a presentation, public presentation. I showed a clip from that. And it's, people seem to really like this movie, which is great because it was well, well received when it was out, came out in 1918. I was going to ask, yeah, do we, do we know the critical reception? How do we know that? Yeah, because there's, there are reviews from the time. There are movie magazines by that point. Oh. And there are movie critics. It, you know, it's amazing that. In less than 10 years, this movie business has suddenly grown to the point where there's magazines and, and critics and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, they, um, they quite like this movie. It would have done quite well for Christie. He was having troubles making money in the late 19-teens because there was a lot of competition and there were the war was – World War I was on. And so that was hurting business. And then the Spanish flu started. And people weren't, they were closing theaters and all this kind of stuff. Um, so we did have some financial difficulties, but a, a movie like that would have done quite well. Huh. And, and actually, so speaking of which, he didn't, uh, he didn't go off to fight, I gather, but he was of fighting age. Well, he would have been in his 30s. He did sign up, from what I understand, for World War I, as I guess for the U.S. I don't know what signing up meant for him, somebody like that. You know, they probably would have said, you're too old, but you can do whatever. As far as I know, all he did was he made movies, but right. he did. I think he raised money. You know, that would have been one thing that he would have done, raised money to, I don't know, war bonds or whatever, like something they would have had back then. So, yeah, so he was um, he was having a bit of financial troubles in that at, at that point. He had left Universal in 1915 to set up his own studio with his brother, Charles. And um, apparently they didn't pay people the most from like other studios were, but they had loyal actors and they made a lot of films. Uh, I think the films did quite well and they did manage to survive, which apparently a lot of film companies between sort of 1915 and 1920 did not. So to their credit, they did survive. I guess there was the the big ones shaping up uh, like Universal and uh, was Warner Brothers around at that time? Warner Brothers was a little later, I think. And just again, for a piece of London, Ontario trivia, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers was born in London, Ontario. The oh. Warners lived in London for about a year. So again, Christie pro- would have known Warner when they were in Hollywood. They probably knew that they were both Canadian and probably knew they both came from London, Ontario. But I don't have any right. concrete things that say, oh, here's when they met and did this. Charlie Chaplin would have been around and. But yeah, Chaplin and Keaton and all sort of big names would have been there by before 1920. Wow. Okay. So he's having trouble making money. Uh, does he get back in his feet? Does he, he keeps in the, he's in this business for the long haul, right? He is. And he keeps turning out the movies. What happens is, and we talked about this briefly before about distribution. That was always the challenge is how do you distribute your films? 
Um, and he used, up to that point, he used independent distributors, and that worked okay, but it was kind of hit and miss to some extent. But they signed on with a company called Educational Films, which was based in New York. And it was a company that this guy had started up, as the name suggests, to, to make educational movies, but found that, that wasn't, there wasn't much of an audience for it. And so he was looking to hook up with somebody making popular films, and he hooked up with Christie. And that's really what saved the Christie company. And they had a relationship throughout, through most of the 1920s with them handling the distribution and Christie making the, the comedies. And really in the 20s is when Al Christie sort of peaks making some, you know, films that are doing really well, critically well-received, better quality, bigger budgets, all that kind of stuff. And um, he's really thriving. So the film that we saw was a short film. Mm -hmm. And so we made a lot of them. Does he eventually make feature length? Yes. He started making some feature length ones around, I think in the sort of 1917, 1918, in that time frame. He made a few. And then in the 20s, he made more of them. But he was still... He really still embraced the short film genre. So at that point, the words they used back then were one reelers and two reelers. Yeah, and that's essentially it. what a one reel film was like about a 10 minute, 10 to 12 minutes, and a two reeler was around 20 to 24 minutes. In the 20s, he's making mostly these two reel films, these short films that are about 20 to 20 minutes or so. And there's a big audience for that. And a lot of people are still making those. They're called Sorry? sitcoms. In a sense. minutes is basically a sitcom, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And he's, I mean, and he's the situational comedy guy. So he's really, yeah, yeah making yeah. that fit that time frame. Um, but there are other movies that are being made that are longer and they might be seven reels or eight reels or whatever. Anyway, they were usually an hour or more, maybe two hours. He made them, but he was constantly saying in the sort of movie trade uh, magazines that short films are the way to go. Uh, this is what the audience is really like. They go to these longer features and they're bored and they walk out and they don't really want to see that. They want to see fun comedy in uh -oh. a short time. And he so does he's this the, all through the 1920s, even while he's making the longer films. So he's the Kodak of filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah. So he kind of gets it wrong. And it's interesting how these different businesses are, you know, shaking out the business model and, uh, you know, like equating it today and, and, and publishing. You know, how do you make money in books? You know, because the, the model is changing and, right. uh, you know, and what's it going to turn into? So then it was making short films and then and then some people moving to longer films and becoming quite successful. And then other people like Al Christie kind of resisting. And right. so how does he do with that? I guess what's helping him to some extent is that he is, in fact, right, that there is still a big audience for short comedies. And what a lot of the movie theaters of the time are doing are they're showing a short comedy a newsreel, maybe a cartoon, yeah. and then the feature. So it, it, it slots in there as part of the evening's entertainment. Right. Yeah. And he keeps saying that, you know, and I don't know where he was getting his information from, or you would say things like, you know, that our research shows that, you know, the audience comes for the short film, but they, and they stay for the feature. It's not the other way around. That that's what's really <laughs> drawing them in, blah, blah, blah. And he, he just promotes this constantly throughout the decade. And he's not the only one, obviously, that's making these short films. So he, he must have something right in that, yes, that's in fact what they're doing. They are showing these, these comedy films, these short comedy films, and people seem to like them. But he definitely dips into the feature uh, movies because, again, probably he sniffs the wind and knows that there's, there's money to be made there. And it almost seems like he was be before his time because uh, maybe he was making product that would have been more appropriate for what became television. Well, that, that's a really good question or observation because one of the people that I talked to, a film historian, said that he thought that Al Christie, sort of like the father of the rom-com and the TV shows that started in the 1950s were about, you know, couple of husband and wife and blah, 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 and they get into crazy situations. You know, that's a lot of what he was doing uh, in the 20s and sort of into the 30s as well. And another, um, another film historian I talked to said that the so-called screwball comedies of the 1930s, the sort of wacky, fast-paced comedy films sort of from 1935 on, again, he, he thinks that Christie's films were sort of the precursor of that. 
if if he was alive today and a, you know roughly let's say 25 he would be on TikTok right yes he'd be all yeah. over that he would be yeah because um one of the things that he that he did was he embraced the technology silent movies okay yeah i'm going to get into that and do that oh that's that's working really well um i'm going to try different things i'm going to you know there were some of his films where they they did some technical things that nobody had done before. So some technician uh, who was in a staff came up with something, just how a, how a movie shot dissolved into another one, that kind of thing. When talking pictures came in in the late 20s, he and his brother Charles were one of the first to start making them. They just said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And they bought a sound studio in LA, which was the major sound studio. They bought it and um, rented it out to various people uh, to make sound movies. So yes, I'm, <laughs> he would have been on TikTok, I'm sure. And that's the short format too, which he would have loved. Yeah. He would have liked the short format. So how did that, that work out though, in terms of the talkies? Like, did he make that transition? He makes the transition and he, what happens is that he parts ways with educational films because Paramount, again, another company that's still around, Paramount uh, lures him over, I guess, to start making talking films. And again, I've seen a few of them and the people, again, I've talked to who are sort of more experts than I am say that, you know, basically Paramount bought him out and didn't, didn't neglected him, just didn't really promote his stuff, didn't really care what he was making, etc. So he stuck with them for a while. He left them and he ultimately ends up going back to educational in the early 30s. But the Christie studio, um, which he'd had since 1915, they go bankrupt in 1933. Why? Well, because it's the depression. That's the number one reason. And secondly, they are buying a lot. They're doing a lot of investing. They're buying a lot of real estate. They're buying cars that you can rent out to other movies. They're, they're kind of going all in, in in various things. They bought the Metropolitan Studio, which was the sound studio, which would have cost them a fortune. And they just get, you know, it goes too far and they can't keep up. Right. So they declare bankruptcy in uh, 1933. And from what I'm told by a distant relative of Christie who lives in, in LA, they paid all their debts. They had debts. They paid them all off. They sold the studio. They did whatever they had. They sold everything they had. They had a lovely mansion in Beverly Hills. Um, and there's a story that goes with that. They sold it uh, so that they could pay all their debts. And then Charles sort of leaves the business for a while. And Al goes back to New York to work for educational films, making short comedy films, but talking ones now. And they, again, mm. would be in that sort of 20 minute or so range. Now, before we get too far past it, what's that story? Yeah, about what's the, that? The who, who lives in that house now? Come on. Yes, that's the, there we go. Dish, dish. So, <laughs> so they built this mansion in Beverly Hills and it's called the Waverly Mansion. And if Mark Rayner might know from London, Ontario, there is a Waverly mansion yeah, in London, Waverly. which yeah, is yeah. now a senior's home. The guy who built that Waverly mansion originally in London was named Durand, and he was Charles Christie's father-in-law. He was an architect, George Durand, and his, his daughter married Charles Christie. So my feeling, I don't know this 100% for sure, but I'm thinking they called the one in Beverly Hills the Waverly as a tip of the hat to yeah. his father-in-law. Right. They sell the house. It has about eight or 10 different owners over the years. And in the early 1990s, Phil Collins, the rock star, and his wife, then wife, Jill Collins, buy the house. Jill still lives in the house. She wow. and Phil are long divorced, but she, she lives in the house. And her daughter, Lily, who's an actress and quite famous in her own right, that's where Lily would have grown up. Huh. And I contacted Jill. She has some businesses in Beverly Hills. And I thought, it'd be so cool to go and see the house. So I just emailed her and said, you know, basically, you don't know me, but I'm doing this story on El Christie. And I know you live in his house, blah, blah, blah. And I'm coming there. Can we meet up? So she emailed me in about within an hour. Sure, come on down. I'll show you around, blah, blah, we can talk. So I did go down in summer of 2022 as I was finishing up the book. I met with her. I did an interview with her. She said, you know what? We should go and see the house because she didn't know who I was, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. Invite a stranger out, you know, so we, I met at one of her 
antique businesses. And she said, yeah, let's go to the house. I'll show you the house. Smart lady. So I, went, I went there the next day and, you know, drive up and the gates open and you go into this mansion and it's got five car garage and all this stuff. And she walked, we walk around the house and she points out some things to me. And then she says, you know what? I think we should go inside. And she showed me part of the inside of the house. She said, she asked me not to take any photos, but so she was very nice, very helpful, gave wow. me lots of good information and uh, told me a little bit about the history of the house, which I have in the book. I mentioned that there's part of the book about that. And wow. we've already established that Joe is a huge Phil Collins fan. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, Genesis and Phil Collins. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there you there's your Al Kirstie connection right there. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so things have gone south for him in the worst year of the Depression, 1933. He's divested himself of uh, uh, all his belongings. He's now in New York, and he's making short films again. Yep. And uh, how does he make out from there? He does quite well. He makes, uh, again, he's got a pretty steady pace. He's probably making not quite the, you know, movie a week that he was doing in the silent film era, but he's probably making 20, I would guess, maybe 20. A year? 15 to 20 short films a year. He's working with Buster Keaton. He made a couple of films with Buster Keaton, whose whose career is kind of on the downslide at this point. But he's also making films with up and comers. So he made a film with Bob Hope, who's just sort of on his way to becoming famous. Uh, Bert Lahr, who is um, was the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. Lucille Ball, apparently. Danny Kaye. All these people who were starting wow. out got mm. worked with him in these short films that he was making for. Um, educational films and I've only seen some of them they're like eh, they're okay some the one with Bob Hope is not really funny at all um, but some of the other ones are, are not bad um, but they're again they're doing well they're making money they seem to be you know he was he was earning a really good living uh, once he hooked up with them so everybody presumably kind of you know knew him yeah. in, in in Hollywood at that time. He's rubbing shoulders with uh, all those guys and gals, mm-hmm. and his DNA by this point is probably all over you know Hollywood product. <laughs> Nobody uh, apart from yourself and a few others, uh, silent film buffs and whatnot, ha- have heard of him. What happened to him? Why isn't he you know mentioned yeah. the same breath as yeah, Buster? Thank Keaton you, Joe. Now? That's my question too. <laughs> Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and I sort of I, I take part of the la- the last chapter of my book to sort of talk a little bit about this. And again, from talking to other people who were silent film experts, one of the things is a lot of his films didn't survive. Um, I mean, he made more than a thousand films, so I mean, yeah. still a lot that did survive, but many of them didn't because a lot of those films. Either they, you know, they were they, they were made of a material that didn't last, or if they weren't stored properly, they would just, you know, crumble. For whatever reason, people probably didn't think they were worth keeping, that kind of thing. So that's one reason. The second reason is he never made sort of the one great film that lives on right. or the one great actor or actress that lived on as a legend. He had a lot of people who did really well. Um, some who worked w- with him early on in their careers and then later, you know, went to some other places and did, had great careers. And his actors were sort of that middle of the road. They were stars at the time, but never really lasted beyond probably, the, I don't know, maybe the 30s or 40s. So that's another reason. Somebody else has told me that when TV came in in the 50s, a lot of silent films, that's what they showed uh, on, you know, in the more Saturday mornings or whatever, it was silent films. And I'm told that uh, they did show Christie films, but they were badly edited and they had, sometimes they would have dialogue over top of them. And so Um, again, people didn't really recognize his product or something. I don't know. And I think he's kind of just faded away, but strangely enough, he does have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So enough people were around. I think, I think he got a star in 1961 or something. So he would have been dead for about 10 years. Right. So he was appreciated at some point by somebody. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't know, There's there there are some people who've written histories of silent film who have just sort of dismissed him. They, they mention him. They go, yeah, well, Christy, yeah, he made a bunch of films, but nothing too amazing. So therefore, we're moving on to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton instead. And then there's other, I mean, there's all kinds of silent film directors from that era that, again, we wouldn't know their names. Yeah, we would never heard of them. They're not getting any publicity much either so 
So, okay. So then well, that begs the shame. question. Is it a shame well, or I, let's well, ask I, the hard I question? Because I actually, I, I was watching. So just based on the one film we watched, the 13 minute film, I was like, how is this? Like he's doing like a drawing room comedy with no dialogue. Right. And I was quite entertained. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. No. Could I have watched an hour of it? No, absolutely not. But for 13 minutes, it was quite entertaining and the actors were great. And I laughed, I think at least four or five times out loud. And that's pretty good for, for a silent film. I mean, right. Well, not- but okay. But here's the hard question. So you and I, Mark Rayner. I'm an easy uh, laugh. And- I'll admit that. <laughs> no, no. But, uh, and probably yourself, Mark K, I'll say. We know many writers who have written excellent books who are, you know, not going to sell more than 100 copies or whatever and and are not going to achieve greater renown. How is he any different than them? Where does he actually fit in the pantheon? So I think he fits in the pantheon as primarily as the guy who started starts Hollywood. I mean, you know, if, if nothing else, he's the guy that goes to Hollywood and actually makes films in Hollywood and Hollywood becomes the movie capital of the world. So he's got to get some credit for that. Yep. He's yep. he's an advocate of short films. That's probably worth noting. He's a the other theory about Christie, and I'm not sure that I buy that, but he was very much a promoter of women in films. Mm-hmm. Many of his films star women. Women are not they're not just playing housewives. They're they're you know they're often in some career, and some some critics have said. Well, you know, because he his his big films starred women, women were overlooked in the silent film era, therefore he's overlooked. That's a possibility as well. I, I actually I would agree with that again, just based on the limited <laughs> sample size of Know Thy Wife, <laughs> that that's actually a kind of feminist film in a yeah, way. Yeah, it yeah. really is. And he's he's been called that. He's been called a feminist director, which is interesting. I don't think he would live up to that in his, in real life, but he was definitely, he, he had several articles that I came across where he talked about how it's the women of, of the, of America or North America who decide which film they're going to go see. And I know that that's who just makes the decision. So that's why I'm making films for them. So he's blatantly uh, t- saying that for sure. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. And why do you say that he wouldn't live up to that in his real life? Cause we haven't really talked about his personal life much. How does he shake up there? Well, he was, he was married before he got to Hollywood, married a woman from here in London, Ontario. They had a daughter. They divorced in probably around, I'm going to say 1920. And she goes on to live till she died in like 1983. And I don't know a lot about her, but she did remarry at some point as well. Al was sort of known a bit as a bit of a ladies man, flirted with his actresses. I'm told he had some <laughs> kind of aha, had some <laughs> kind of affair with Dorothy DeVore, okay. uh, his actress. I believe, I believe that. He got re- he did remarry in I think 1927 to a very young actress. I think they later divorced, although I never got any specific year or details on that, but and she then later remarried. So he was so, setting the pace for Hollywood. Uh, I was generally, just thinking that, not just yeah. like being the first there. He yeah. was also yeah. setting yeah. the standards. Setting the standards of whatever. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's like, oh, okay, Al Christie yeah. does that. Well, I guess yeah. we could do that I guess too. That's yeah. what we do. Well, who knows, right? So um so there is that bit of that reputation. Um, but at the on the other side of it, he lives in this mansion. It has sort of three wings. He has one, his brother Charles lives in one wing, and his mother and his wow. sister Anne live in the other one. So the whole they spend their whole lives, almost adult lives together in one house. Uh, Goodness. Much bigger oh, wait, wait. Where did his mother and sister wind up when he had to downsize? I think what happened is Charles got into real estate and he actually bought another house in Beverly Hills, much smaller. But the mother and the sister lived there with, with him. And then Al, when he came back from New York in 1940, I think, he came and lived with Charles as well in this smaller house. Did he have children and are, are any of his descendants around? Or? Yeah. So Al and his first wife, Nora, had a daughter, uh, Lenora Christie, who they was called Shirley. Shirley Christie was about 10 years old when she died in a horse riding accident. 
Oh. She was on a horse with some people at a local club in, I guess, L.A., and somehow fell off. Don't really know why. There was a little, there's a bit of a story in the newspapers at the time. She went to the hospital and died fairly soon afterwards. Um, he never had any more kids. Charles, Charles's wife died in 1918 or 19, and he never remarried, and he didn't have kids, but he, he also was known as a bit of a ladies' man, too, apparently. And when did the daughter die? 1922. I was thinking, I just watched Gone with the Wind recently, and of course, that's a major well, plot point. You know what? I'm I'm glad you brought that up, because when I read the accounts of her, her falling off the horse, I thought about that scene in Gone with the Wind where the daughter falls off the horse and dies. And I yeah. looked, and I Googled, and I, you know, is this inspired in any way by that story? I couldn't find any connection. Hmm. And I don't know when Gone with the Wind, the book was written, but I think it would have been after his daughter's death. So I, I don't see, know. Uh, Mark R is, uh, is if starting only we his, had um, some, uh, yeah, some means of figuring this sort of thing out. <laughs> I'm looking it up as we, as okay, we speak. Uh, yeah, 19, yeah uh, 1936. So you're right. Yeah. So I don't know. I always, I thought that would have been a cool connection, but I couldn't find any evidence to back it up. Yeah. Still. But, yeah. Quite, uh, quite tragic. Right. Um, and yeah. apparently again, in this, uh, this, I meant to talk about this in the book as well. He apparently never talked about it. Nobody ever raised it. Some some people who worked with Al Christie years later didn't even know he'd had a daughter. So it just it, nothing happened. He didn't seem to slow down his work pace after she died. He just went on. And she's buried. They're all buried in the same area of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So um, yeah. Shirley and uh, the daughter and Nora, the first wife, are right beside Al Christie. Charles is there, and the, apparently the half sister is there somewhere. But so they're they're there, even yeah. though they split up. They're they were all close, there. even though yeah. you know things didn't work out great. Mm-hmm. I imagine that dying from falling off a horse was more common in that era yeah. than we yeah. think. Yeah, for sure. I think there were probably a lot of that those kinds of accidents for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the last few minutes, then yeah. um, let's talk about uh, your book about about him. Yeah. So, which just came out in August, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It came out in uh, August. Bear Manor Media is the publisher. They're based in Florida. They do a lot of entertainment books. If you were to go on the Bear Manor Media website, you would be overwhelmed with the number of Hollywood slash movie slash TV books that they, they put out. So um, that's why I hooked up with them. It's available. Well, as far as I know, it's available certainly anywhere where Amazon is. So I know somebody emailed me to say that in Australia that they bought the book on Amazon Australia or whatever. So it is on amazon.ca and amazon.com and all the Amazons, I guess, that are out there. Um, It's on Indigo. Um, It's in some of the Indigo bookstores, I'm told. It's on Barnes and Noble's website in the US. It's Um, probably available everywhere. It's available in Britain, et cetera. Uh, but yeah. Mark, I have another question just because just because of the London connection and go back to that a bit. How did you find out about this story and right. how excited were you when you did? So I've, I've been a, a fan of silent movies for a while. Not a big fan, but I kind of like the, the era and I'd read some books about it. And I was kind, I'm kind of fascinated by it a bit. And I've seen you know a good chunk of silent films. I was in the Weldon Library at Western one day okay. some years ago, probably in the late 90s, and I was just going through various movie books, and I came across a guy by the name of John Robertson, who was a silent film director who was also born in London, Ontario. And I started looking into his life and thinking, yeah, maybe I'll write a book about this guy. And I got some information Um, And I was, you know, I was still thinking about it. And then somehow he led me to Al Christie. And Al Christie seemed to have a little bit more written about him and seemed to be more well-known. And as I say, as I found out some years later, his documents, a lot of his papers and the Christie Studio papers are housed in the University of Wyoming, which has a place called the American Heritage Center where they have all kinds of weird and wonderful Americana. Okay. So that's one of his actresses 
when she died, she had all these documents and she donated them. Okay. So that's how I got into Al Christie. And the fact that he was, as I say, he was from London, Ontario, and seemed to be this overlooked, quite prolific, well-known, well-respected director made me say, okay, I should write a book about this guy someday. And I finally... <laughs> I finally did after so many years. Um, so I'm glad that it's out and I'm, I'm hoping that people will, you know, obviously buy it and read it and find out about this guy. Oh, well, congratulations. So what, what's next for you? What are you working on now? I'm working on trying to promote and sell a book, uh, mostly. Um, <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Your publisher is and, very uh, happy. <laughs> happy. I'm hoping that, um, that I will get more uh, media attention, certainly in Canada, but also in the U.S., I'm going to be at the Columbus Silent Film Festival in next May doing a presentation on Christie and uh, talking to people there. Uh, so that's good. People are saying, so what, what book are you going to write next? I don't know. I'm going to see how this goes. And then I'll see whether I want to do another kind of entertainment book or what exactly. I'm going to just write it out for an, at least a year before I make any big decision on, on what to do next. Well, good luck. Yeah. And we'll have all the information about your book and where to get it on our, uh, on our website. Great. Thank you. And uh, Appreciate Mark, you. any final thoughts or questions? Oh, no, and- just thank you so much for bringing this to my attention because it was fascinating to me. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. I, I do know that people who have read it say, oh, yeah, how come I didn't know about this guy? Now, is there going to be some kind of uh, effort to get him a star on the Canada Walk of Fame? It's good you mentioned that. I just filled out their form the other day. Okay. There's a form online where you, anybody can make a recommendation. So I'll, I'll attach a link to the form in the show notes so that we can get this happening. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 But most importantly, right. a link to the book. A link so to the book. Everyone can go buy the book. <clears throat> Mark, thank you very much for being on our podcast, Recreative. Thank you so much, Joe and to Mark. I really appreciate the time you, to, you gave me to talk about this. It was great. Recreative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.